Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Take your Bibles this morning and open with me to the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra, while you're turning there, remind you of two important points of mission for the life of our church. In two weeks, on Sunday, February the 27th, we will celebrate our first baptism Sunday of the year. We have about six candidates that are already scheduled for baptism. If you're ready to take that next step of water baptism, to follow Jesus by faith, make your faith public in Him... Or if it's something you're not sure if you need to do or not, but would like to talk with the pastor, we would love to speak with you this week. You can write that on your Connect card, your response card there. We'll follow up with you or come up after the service, and we'll find some time to sit down and discuss that, all right? We'd love to discuss that with you. And then if you're interested in going to Montana with the team this summer, uh, the first week of July, there will be a meeting next Sunday at 1230 in the North commun- or North uh, Multipurpose Room where we'll talk about the details of the Montana mission trip. So invite you to come. It's not a commitment. It's just an information meeting for you. All right. Well, Ezra chapter 1, we began a series last week called Pursuing God, and we're going to walk through the book of Ezra for the next several weeks. And today, we're going to look specifically at the hand of God. The hand of God. Before we dive in, I, I want to I direct our minds to think for a moment. Have you ever thought about how many indicators that are active in your daily life? And some of you are like, well, no, because I turn all my notifications off. Good for you. Good. Next step is turn the phone off, right? But uh, that's another sermon. That's a different sermon. Now, how many indicators are in our life? Now, when I say indicator, it might be uh, anything that indicates the state or the level of something. It might point you to some word of caution or danger that's approaching, or it might just point you to something you need to know or even something of greater value or importance. Far too often, indicators are only used as something to dread, right? Like the emergency sirens. If you're not from the plain states, if you came from the west or the north and you didn't grow up with tornadoes, you know, that's one of the most fearful things for people moving to this part of the world is learning to deal with tornadoes. Let me tell you the best way to deal with the tornado, when that siren sounds, run to the front porch. It's one of the funnest things to watch in the whole world. It won't hit you. No, that's bad advice. So just in case you're wondering, some indicators warn us of threat and dread you know like the car dashboard one of those lights comes on while you're driving it's not supposed to be on that can be a bad thing right but many of them are just common indicators as well like that little red dot with a number in the middle of it on your phone that some of you are so proud because it's four five six digits long I don't even know why you have an email if you're never going to open it why do you even bother with one right It's an indicator of something that it's pointing you to. Well, I found an article this week of the top four indicators of length of life. So these are four indicators that tell us how long that we may expect to live. Indicator number one is grip strength. So it's talking about just the strength of your muscular system, but as it is demonstrated in grip strength. So how strong are you in your grip strength? The second one is walking speed. Some of you were just 
created it wide open and you walk at speeds none of us can keep up with, that is evidently a good indicator of long life for you. Another indicator that I found really depressing, to be quite honest, was the sit to rise indicator. So when you're seated on the ground, how many points do you score before you can stand up? Like a zero would be you're seated and you can stand up without, you know, like every part of your body that you have to touch to stand is a point. So like if you have to kind of, you know, roll your knee over and your leg touches from your knee to your ankle, that's a point. If you put your hand down, that's a point. If, if you put your elbow down, your arm down, that's another point. You know, if you have to roll over, that's a point. If you go to your knees, that's a point. If you push up on your knees, that's a point. I got to be honest with you, friends. Based on my score, it was 2023. I don't think I'm going to make it to next year. And then the fourth indicator of long life is life purpose. Now that one just kind of comes out of left field, doesn't it? I mean, life purpose, like these others, grip strength, we get that walking speed, yes. I mean, you know, dexterity and all of body control and balance, that makes sense. But life purpose just kind of hits you out. I'm like, oh, oh, I need to think about that for a moment. How many of us live on purpose? Well, today we're going to talk about some indicators as we look at pursuing God And look at the hand of God at work in the world. Now, when I talk about the hand of God, I want you to understand what I'm talking about. I'm referring to the work of God. And and it may be what he does or the way he does it or even the power, the strength, or the might by which he does it. But when I say the hand of God, I'm referring to one of those uh, dynamics about God. You know, and Scripture gives us a great advantage in looking at the hand of God. It tells us what God is doing, right? And sometimes when it tells us what God is doing, it tells us that this is God that is actually doing it. That's what we're going to see today. And that's a big advantage for us because we learn that. You know, in real time of life, we don't always have the capacity to to see everything and go, well, that's the hand of God right there. Or do we? I mean, sometimes, you know, you You hear people say things about God and you go, wait a minute, I don't think I've ever read that in the Bible. Where'd that come from? How do you you know if God is working in the world today? How do you know if what is taking place is God or not? Well, my argument for us today is that there are indicators that point us to God. Because of those indicators, we can be confident that God is working today. Let's go to Ezra chapter 1. I want to read the whole chapter. It's only 11 verses. But I'm going to read Ezra chapter 1 for us, and then we'll come back and continue with the sermon. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. 
Then he rose up, or excuse me, then rose up the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with good, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels." All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Ezra begins his record by revealing the hand of God that is at work. And he records that Cyrus, the king of Persia that we saw last week, had just come to power, had made a proclamation and recorded it on his cylinder that is a historical artifact to this day. And he said that the people may return to Jerusalem to build a temple for worship and that they should receive aid in their return. Then Those who rose to return would be given gifts, they would be given offerings and the other things that they needed, and that there was a precise returning of the very vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from the house of the Lord and put in his own house to use in the service of his God. Cyrus said, take all of those things, here's a record of them, send them back, they will be used in the house of the God of Jerusalem. And that's what they took. You see, this work was not simply another decree of a king or just good fortune of a people. And that's what we need to be careful to understand. Verse 1 tells us, Ezra is writing to tell us that it is God who stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. You say, well, why would people think anything else? Because it was the Persian Empire's foreign policy to allow people who had been taken into exile by by the Babylonian kingdom to either return if they chose to. They could go back and if they conquered a people, they would leave them there and let them maintain a sense of freedom in their life because it was Cyrus's conviction that this was the best way to bring stability to his kingdom by leaving peace and letting people be happy. Live and let live as long as you live the way and under the rule that I have. That's kind of the the strategy that he uh, uh, employed. And so one could look at this from a historical perspective and go, well, Cyrus was just doing what Cyrus did. But Ezra said, no, Cyrus wasn't just doing what Cyrus just did. Cyrus was doing what God had stirred his heart to do. That's what verse 1 tells us. To issue this decree. And then when we see these people who years and decades before, two, three generations before had been taken into exile and now many of them were very old and could barely remember what had taken place before, a great number of them had been born while in exile. And so what was called our homeland or our home country was someplace that people had never even been. 
And so you could have said, well, it was just those people who wanted to go back. They remembered the good old days. They remembered how good home was. And so they were going back to find that goodness. But again, that's not what's transpiring here because Ezra says that God stirred the hearts of all of those who rose up to return. Verse 5. So he's telling us that the hand of God is at work both in the king to make his decree and among the people to rise up and return. Now, this is not the first time we see the scripture recording the hand of God working in the king's life, for sure, let alone the people. Exodus tells us that it was the hand of God that moved Pharaoh's heart too, though it moved it in a different direction to oppose the people who were enslaved under him instead of favoring them. And Ezra is reflecting this as well. Surely the return of the exiles is but a microcosm of the freeing of the Israelite people from the Egyptian slavery. So we have a second exodus, if you will, here in their return. But Ezra is telling us there, he's making clear that we should not believe this was only the king's intuition or foreign policy or only the people's desire Ezra from the very beginning points us that this is the great work of the hand of our God. Friends, what I want us to see from this passage today is this, that God works to accomplish his will by calling people to follow by faith for the glory of his great name. I'm going to ask you today to use eyes of faith to see what God is doing, not only in this passage, but because of what we learn here all around us each and every day. And then I'm going to ask you to have ears of faith to hear what God is saying to his people, you and I today, and to heed that and to follow in obedience in trusting him. God is at work. That's the grand statement of Ezra that he begins the book with. He's the spiritual leader of the people. And as I said, there would really be three waves that would come back. Zerubbabel would be the first. Ezra would be the second. And Nehemiah would lead the third. Each of them had different aspects of their work. Ezra was given the leadership of the spiritual life of the people. He was the spiritual leader of the people in all of their returns. And what he's doing here is he's pointing the people to look beyond just their circumstance or their happenstance to see the sovereign providence of God in the daily events of their life. He's pointing us to the same. To look not just with our eyes, to hear not just with our, uh, to, excuse me, to hear not just with our ears, but for our hearts to have eyes and ears of faith to hear and see that we might heed. What are we to take from this? Because so often in the reading of Scripture, we do not because we cannot see these things in everyday life. But listen, Ezra is giving us a great provision here. He's revealing to us the hand of God at work among us. Helping us to see these things. The big question that we have to begin this study with is this. Does God still work in this way today? And my argument for us is this. He absolutely does because God only works 
in accordance with his character, his nature, and his being. And what he has done, he has always been about doing and forevermore shall be. And we can trust that. We can say confidently, yes, this is not just a one-time occurrence. God works through earthly rulers to accomplish his will. Listen to Proverbs 21.1 when it says, A king's heart is like streams of water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. Doesn't mean he's going to direct it when we choose. But it does mean he directs it when he chooses. And God works in the hearts and lives of his people to accomplish his will for his pleasure. We may not see God's hand at work the way we read it in Ezra. But we can know he is working. And when God is working, his people are called to follow him. That's what I want us to see today. We're going to look at four indicators. Four indicators that we see here but that we can apply in our daily lives to recognize God's hand at work and to respond to his call to join him by faith. The first indicator I want us to see this morning is this. God works by stirring our heart to lead us to worship Jesus. God works by stirring our hearts to lead us to worship Jesus. You see, all of God's work in Cyrus and and the people was to lead to worship. That's why God was doing all that he was doing. That's why God does all that he does. In every passage, every verse of scripture, there is one grand glory for which God uh, rationalizes and explains everything that he does. And it's for the worship of his name. That's why you and I were created. Yes, all of creation can be beheld and glory can be given to God because of what is seen. But in the creation of people who were created in God's image, we can not only be beheld and God be worshipped, but we can behold the one who is worthy of worship. Ezra states that in his record, it is the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. God is leading his people back from exile because he is working to fulfill his covenant of salvation with them. That's what the Jeremiah passage is all about. God says, you are my people. I sent you to where you are and I will come again for you. And when I come again, I will bring you back to that place. And so this work, the reason Ezra says this is the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy is because he is saying to the people, God is working for our salvation and he is leading us in his covenant promise to return and to worship him. You see, Ezra's record is not about building a wall, a temple, or any kind of physical structure. It is about God who is working to draw his people in faith to worship Worship before him for the glory of his name. That's why the hand of God is working in the world today. For the work of his hand moves the spirit and captures the heart before it convinces the mind. Because if the mind gets convinced, faith is not required. You see, we know that God's purpose is glory through worship because he created us as worshiping beings. And if we do not worship God, we will feel the longing of worship and glory in our life, whatever the manifestation may be. We will fill it with lesser, false, pseudo-idols. 
But the work of God's hand moves us in our spirit and captures our heart to move us for him. You see, friends, the one whose heart will not be captured by the work of God, remaining unimpressed, and the one who's, uh, 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 who will not have their mind convinced by the hand that he is working will never believe that it is God, in fact, that is working. Psalm 92.4 states, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the work of your hands I sing for joy. You see, it's the work of God. It is the hand of God at work in this world and in our lives that brings the gladness of heart. That's his work. That's not the world that's bringing you that gladness because that gladness is fleeting. That's not your own decisions that are bringing you that gladness. Your decisions are fleeting gladness. It is the work of God in the heart and the mind of his people. We are created for and captured by God to behold his glory and worship him. You see, those who know God, who are Christians as we say today, who put their faith in Jesus Christ, repenting of their sins, receiving forgiveness and cleansing from that sin and being adopted into the family of God. We are called to see the hand of our good Father at work in the world and respond by following in faith. Psalm 8.3 says this, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You know what the psalmist is saying? The psalmist has absolutely lost his mind in wonder, simply staring up at the stars of the heavens. He says, God, why would you give me any consideration at all? All of this is yours. Why do you even care about me? He wasn't questioning whether God did care about him. Rather, it was a declaration that he absolutely knew he did. You see, friends, when you see God's work, and especially with the eyes of faith, you may not fully comprehend or understand everything that is, being, that is taking place, but you can worship. Matter of fact, I would argue there's nothing that can prevent you from worshiping. You see, God reveals not so that we can be wowed in amusement, but so that we can be awed to worship. And I think we've missed this too often today. If you walk into the church looking to be entertained, you may or may not be impressed. You may like the songs they sing today or you may not like the songs they sing today. You may like the songs they sing, but you didn't care for the way they sang them. You know, they just did too much of this or too many too many's of that. You may like the verse that got preached, or that may not be your favorite one, but you may not like the way that the, the, the preacher put the words together. They just didn't tickle your ears as much as they do sometimes. You see, when you come in looking to be wowed in order to be amused or entertained, you may or may not be impressed. And I would say to you, whichever way it goes, it's equally condemning and damning. Because if you're not impressed, you're like, I don't think that has anything to do with me. And here's what we say today. I'll go find a better production online. And I'll bring God to me. Or if we do say, oh, they did it all perfectly right today. That's no more a statement of faith than they didn't get anything right today. Because that's just an evaluation of performance and production. It's not a heart that is moved to worship God. But... But if you are pursuing God 
By faith, you're seeing the hand of God at work and you know that he is working to bring you to worship in awe of him. Then you see that he is revealing himself. You hear that he is inviting you in and you are saying, yes, God, I want to come. I am ready. You see, anything at this moment that stirs the heart to think on and to respond to Jesus is the hand of God at work. And this is our indication. No matter where it seemed to begin, God is stirring the heart. He's calling me to himself and this is what God does. And I want to say yes to him. And I want his name to be exalted. I want him to be glorified in my life. That's the intention, the creation for which he has placed me here. God's hand at work first leads us to do what we were created to do. Worship. Worship. So this first indicator causes us to ask a question. Each of us of ourself. Did you come today ready Looking to be awed in the revelation of God for worship? Or did you just walk in wondering if you'd be wowed and amused? Do you believe that God is working here today to bring you into his presence, to worship his name? Or are you wondering if there would be any inkling or nugget given today that might improve your life in some way so you can keep going another day. The second indicator that we see is that God works to strengthen relationship with him. And and I want to qualify relationship here in this way. A knowledge by revelation and an obedience by faith. Knowledge by revelation and obedience by faith. You see, Ezra in pointing to Jeremiah's prophecy, is reminding us of God's promise being fulfilled in this work. And he does that because he wants to teach us who God is. And he also wants to teach us why God is worthy of our trust. You see, there is no revelation from God that comes that does not introduce and instruct and teach us into the very character and nature and being of God. There's a knowledge that we learn about him, but it doesn't just leave us in that realm. The knowledge of God draws us in. And that's what Ezra is doing when he sets Cyrus's decree in the context of the prophecy. He's doing two things. He's saying this, look, this king thought he was sitting high up on the throne, but what he didn't realize is he was at the bottom of the pit that our king sit, who underneath let me try that again he was at the bottom underneath the throne upon which our king sits and looks down he was saying this listen God is the one that is sovereign God is the one that did this God is not out of control because the nations of the world vie for power and authority God is not somehow dethroned because another earthly ruler comes to throne No, he's pointing out the sovereignty of God and the providence of his will being carried out through the rulers of this world. And the second reason he does it is to say to his people, you know that this is God. Come and worship him. Follow him and trust him. Don't let the work of God be demonstrated and the people of God remain unmoved. 
When we know it's God, worship is our first and most natural response of faith. There would be plenty who would hear this call and not heed it. And for any number of reasons, for so many had gone into exile and had established some semblance of quality of life and standard of living for themselves. And to leave that meant that they would have to risk losing that for a promise that even the oldest people talked about the good old days, but even they saw it totally destroyed before they left. And those who had never been there, why would they want to go there? God, I don't know if it's worth giving up what I've built to risk it for what you've promised. But those who would hear and heed, who would have their hearts stirred. And as we'll see when we get to chapter 3 in a couple of weeks, because some of them were old enough to remember. They remember the glory before it was in ruins. And they weep. And others were so overwhelmed by the glory of what God had done through the rebuilding that they wept for joy. You see, their hearts were stirred. And it brought them to worship. They were hearing the word of God and heeding it in their heart and remembering the good work of God. Why? Because their hope rested in him. And they were responding in faith that what God, whatever you have for us is always greater than what we have for ourselves. You see, God reveals himself that we might know him, friends. But knowledge is not reduced and confined only to our intellect. Rather, God's truth is revealed in his word and his word is the living truth, the living word that is the person of Jesus Christ. So the the word of God is not just knowledge for us to own or behold, but rather it is transforming manifestation of the glory of God in the face and in the person and the teaching and the work of Jesus Christ. In him we see God. And what God is is telling us and teaching us and what Ezra is trying to explain, that true knowledge of God is not just intellect, it's relationship. It's knowing and being known by. For knowledge of God in truth and in love doesn't just interact with the gray matter in the mind, but rather it permeates to the heart to strengthen us by faith that we are people who take courage in the Lord and strength of heart for who we are at a deeper level than just what we think is where the living word of God permeates all the way into our being to take hold of us. And therefore we obey and we live out from the source of God living within us. That's what his habitation, the presence of his spirit within us and empowering us is all about. Philippians chapter 2 verses 12 and 13 declares this glorious truth that we work in our life to bring God glory because God has worked for our life. Listen to this, verse 12 and 13. Paul tells the Philippians, work out your own salvation. For, he says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. That little word F-O-R tells us this, that verse 
12 is not the motivation for verse 13, but verse 13 is the motivation for verse 12, that we're working it out because we know it is God who is working in us, that we are hearing and we are heeding the word of God because it is the divine author of all things that is at work in this world. And he's calling us to himself to fulfill the very meaning of our whole life. And in him and in him alone is everything we long for. God's work in us motivates our obedience. And as we follow, it transforms us as it directs us to serve his kingdom mission with our whole life. You see, we see this in the scriptures. Two words I want to use as an illustration today from the scriptures. We hear about the indicatives and the imperatives of scripture. And I want to give you some insight into these. What are the indicatives? Well, the indicatives are a truth of our being or our identity that Scripture speaks over us and says about us. So because we are in Christ, you are one with God in Christ. You're made alive. So these are the indicatives. They are true statements made about us because of the gospel. And the other ones are imperatives. Now, imperatives are commands to obey, right? Sometimes we reduce them just to a list of rules and those kinds of things, and that's never right. And I'm going to show you why, because indicatives and imperatives are never offered individually. They always come together. Why? Because just like I showed you in Philippians 2, the work of God is always the motivation for the movement of his people. Maybe the greatest illustration of this is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. A very familiar verse to so many. It says this, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Ever heard that before? That word for workmanship means that we are the apex of God's masterpiece. That, that's, that's what it says. That it's poema is the Greek word. We are the, we are the apex of God's work in Christ, his redemptive work. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works. And what does the rest of the verse say? But which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see that indicative motivates the imperative. What God says about us explains how, why, when, and everything else about what God commands of us. Every indicative in scripture leads to an imperative and every imperative flows out from an indicative. Our identity fuels our obedience. That's what it means. If you believe what God's word says about you, you will trust what his word says for you. You see, this is relationship with God, friends. He reveals himself to strengthen our faith for obedience. And when we follow as he leads, we see him work. Maybe not with these eyes, but with these eyes. We hear his word, maybe not with these ears, but with the ears of our heart. The posture of our life that is before him. God works, Christian, that you might know that you know the one you know. So that you would walk in full confidence and obedience by faith. Pursuing God means that every act of faith and obedience to God both expands and deepens our knowledge of Him relationship by providing His greater, or by, excuse me, proving His greater faithfulness to strengthen our faith for greater glory. This is how you will know, friends. And so the question from this second indicator is this Does hearing God's word motivate me in love 
to trust and obey. Just to ask you the question. When you hear the word of God, when you read it, when you study it, when you spend time in it, does it motivate you more closely to the heart of God to understand who he is and what he's about doing and how it is he's called you to live that out in your life? You see, that's why the gospel is so powerful. It's not just a set of do's and to don'ts. It's an introduction to a divine being who loves you, who created you for himself, and who wants to live within you. The third indicator is this, that God works to lead his people to demonstrate the glory of Jesus to all the nations. If you look in verse 11, there is a word there used for those who will be going back. It's this. He says this, the second part of the verse. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Why didn't he just say the Israelites? Why didn't he just say the Jews, right? There's a reason, friends, because they were in exile. And in this third indicator, we're seeing that God is working to lead his people to demonstrate the glory of Jesus to all the nations. And when we see this in the scriptures and when we see it in this world, it is an indicator that the hand of God is at work. Why? Because people don't work to serve God on their own initiative or motivation. It is the working of God. Satan never leads someone to serve God for his glory. Satan will confuse you and he will busy you with the activity of religion, but he will never introduce you to the depth of it in relationship with God. You see, he identifies those who are returning back as exiles and what began as a state of being you've been sent into exile you've been made in exile now becomes a characteristic of their very identity because of what God is doing and God is saying this is how I want you to live in the world and friends this identity reminds the people God has not forgotten you in that foreign place God has not even worse forsaken you in that foreign place he remembers you he sees you he knows the circumstance but he is calling you to himself and the question is will you follow him they were away from their homeland but not forgotten by the Lord they were removed from their place of birth but not forsaken by the one who called them out to make them a nation they were removed from their place of worship but they were not separated from the one who alone is worthy of their worship. You see, friends, exiles following God to rebuild would never be about the brick and mortar. It would be about declaring the glory of the God who is worthy of their whole life by trusting and following Him. Friends, God came as our first missionary. Genesis 3:15. He came to us. And he came as our first fruits, both of creation and redemption in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what the scriptures teach us. And because of what he has done in coming to us, we know this. He has sent us to the world. He has sent us to the world. So whether it's in the understanding of who we are or the obeying of what he has done in sending us by the Great Commission... We know that God is the one that is leading us to live in such a way that we reveal the glory of his name to all the people 
of the earth. You say, how would they do that as exiles? Because it didn't make sense from a worldly perspective to leave the stability that they had established. Even though it was a foreign land, it wasn't a foreign land to so many of them because many of the children that were born in exile had never been there. It made more sense to the human rationale, stay put and keep building. Don't expend the energy. But they weren't looking for something to make sense. They were living to produce glory. You get the difference there? You see, God will call you, and sometimes it doesn't make sense. But God's not leading us to make sense. He's leading us to live to produce glory for his name. That's what he's calling us to. We are exiles and exiles form our identity today as we live in this world but are not of this world because we've been redeemed by the one who is above this world and he is going to return and call us home to himself. And if we believe that, we will not get hardened in our position by the comforts and the conveniences and the stability and security that we've built in life. But we'll say, God, I'll keep it as long as you want me to have it but it's all yours and if you call me to throw it all away I'll give it all away because I'm following you you say is it worth it the exiles say it is we're not lost we're not forsaken God's not forgotten you he has put you Christian where you are for this time he wills to use you where you are for this time. He loves you and he is leading you to live to glorify his name before all the nations on earth. Let me just give you one very poignant question to apply. The question for us today is not this. When will God move the heart of the ruler or leader to make things right? That is not the question we Christians ask. Here's the question we ask. Is my heart stirred to trust God to live in such a way that I declare his glory among all the nations of the earth? It's not about what the world's doing. It's not about what the government's doing. It's not about what everybody else is doing. It's not about what the culture is saying or whether it's leading. It's simply about this. Will your heart be stirred by the hand of God to live in obedience to him as a faithful witness among all the nations of the earth. The fourth indicator, and I'll close. God works to strengthen our affections and deepen our abandon to obey. You see, some of you hear the call of God. You go, man, I don't know if I could do that, God. That seems so over me. That seems so beyond. Why don't you choose something that I know I can do? I'll tell you why, because you would do it without needing him. There wouldn't be any glory in that except for you. But God calls us to places that we've not been before. We're not sure we can get there or that we're absolutely convinced we would absolutely fail if we tried. And God says, that's exactly where I want you to go. You see, the purpose of understanding God's providence is not so he can make everything work to our liking, but that in all he works for our holiness by his righteousness and all for his 
glory. And all along the way, he's strengthening our affections for him. That love is just getting deeper so that we lose focus of anything else and set our eyes upon him. And our convictions are becoming deeper to go, I know that God is calling me to this and the whole world is aligned in opposition to it, but I know God is calling me to this and I want to trust him. God is not after our surface trust that obeys him when everything is easy and good and feels right. The hand of God works for those who will trust him regardless of what the winds of culture are saying and blowing because we are called as his and we know he will come through. If you pursue God, friends, without believing or only casually trusting, every time your faith gets challenged, it'll turn into a speculation about God. Well, I guess he's not gonna come through this time. He's forgotten. He's forsaken. Whatever the case may be. But friends, when you follow God with faith, you begin to realize this. You don't have to beg God to work. You don't have to ask God to do something that by his very nature and being, he's already doing. You just gotta open the eyes of your heart. You gotta open your ears and listen. And only behold, listen to Psalm 138, 8. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Ask yourself this question. Are your affections the deep loves of your life? And your convictions strengthening and deepening to produce greater obedience for Jesus in you? Or are you just holding a measure of love for God so you can manage what he asks you for? God calls us to an abandonment of self, friends. That's what die to self means. It's what deny self means. You go, but I don't know what he would do. I'm not sure what he would do. I can tell you what he would do. He would do exactly what he's always done. He'd be faithful. God works to accomplish his will by calling people to follow him by faith for the glory of his great name. As the worship team returns, I want to conclude with one question. Are the indicators that you're responding to and following in your life pointing your eyes and your ears to Jesus to hear and to heed him? Are they pointing you to some other hope, some other place, some other answer, some other conviction, some other strategy, whatever the case may be? What are the indicators saying to you? What are they communicating to you? Where are they pointing you for hope, for love, for acceptance, for understanding, to make sense of all that's going on? Friends, if they're not pointing you to look to Jesus, if they're not pointing you to his word to see the whole counsel of God's wisdom and and, and to look upon the face of Jesus Christ whereby we see the very person of God, then wherever you're looking is not only misleading you but deceiving you and working to harm you. You know, I, I spent the weekend with our students And I walked through recently an event in one of our children's. The hallways are full of these young kids and these teenagers that are... They want more for their life. 
They're hungry for God. And I'm so thankful for the investment that we are able to make in their lives. But I have to ask myself a question. Is that true of the adults in the room? Is it true of those who come to you? Do you want a deeper sense of the presence and the leading of God? Or do you just want to check it off on another box? What are you here for? You're not impressing anyone. God's not impressed by your attendance. If you're, you're not here with a heart that is wanting to pursue Him, you are absolutely wasting your time. I'm not telling you don't come back. I'm telling you to open your eyes and your ears. Moms and dads, we have children who are hungry for the things of God. What are we feeding them? We, we, have, we have a God who, who is calling us to Himself, who is wanting to reveal Himself in greater glory for us. Are we just looking to be wowed in amusement? Or are we asking God to awe us in worship, to move us from where we are, call us to the place that He's leading us to be, to live the life that He is calling us to live, that all the nations might be called to glorify His name? Or we're going, no, I got enough. I'm good. Not everybody went. You know why? They all heard it. They all knew the king is the one who decreed it. But they didn't all believe it. They wouldn't all trust it. What about you? Let's pray.